So, thank you very much, Moksha Jyoti. Um, this is a strange place, I must say, to be giving a talk on homelessness. Uh, I thought it would be. All I knew before I came here was it was the Great Hall. But I thought great probably meant large. And uh, it is. Uh, never mind. I also feel like I've just kind of received a teaching because I arrived half an hour, an hour to 40 minutes before this because I knew it had tea break on the program, which it did, but there was no tea. And I feel this was put there by the organizers as a teaching just to, you know, sort of stimulate that craving and then allow you to work with your reactions to that craving because I just didn't have enough time to get out and get another cup of tea. But never mind, eh? Um, this is a strange place to give a talk because it's quite a personal one and even maybe slightly intimate, but it's not an intimate space. But never mind. What I'd like ideally is to have some time at the end for any kind of questions or reflections from the audience or discussion between us. Uh, so let, we'll see how the time goes, and, um, but please, uh, you know, hopefully there'll be time for that at the end. This is very much not a talk with any answers whatsoever. It's kind of about a little bit autobiographical, the choices I've made to be homeless the last four years or so. But it's not in the least trying to, you know, um, persuade more people to walk out of wherever they live and take up the homeless life. Not at all. I suspect um, it's always going to be a thoroughly minority choice uh, uh, to be homeless. But I think uh, there's something universal in there, which I suppose I would like all of us to come away and apply that universal principle to our own situations. And the universal principle is uh, the principle of um, making conscious choices for our lives. So a few people here, looking around, I know, and I love, and we're friends, and that's wonderful. Quite a lot of people here, I don't know, I've never seen uh, some of you before. So I know nothing about your situations, your lives, your relationships, your commitments, your past, all that. So no idea what sort of choices you could make, or should make, or are making. But the principle is there of just making choices, using the freedom we have to make choices of our lives. Because our future arises in dependence on conditions. That's almost the most basic Buddhist teaching. Things arise, everything arises in dependence on conditions. And so our future lives arise in dependence on the conditions that surround us, which come at least partly from the choices we make. Not wholly, otherwise we'd be sort of omnipotent, but partly at least. And each of us in our lives has some degree of freedom or another uh, within which to make choices. Often a lot more freedom than we think, actually. So maybe that's the universal principle of this talk. Uh, looking at our lives and trying to make full use of the choices available to us. It's also a little bit, I hope, this talk, uh, a celebration of our movement, of our order and a celebration of the kind of principles that underlie it. Because in our order, as Moksha Jyoti says, there's a great many people leading a great many different kinds of lives, all sorts of people. 
I actually started making a list not so long ago of the different things people do, the different lifestyles people lead in the order. And it's, it's wide, it's broad. Uh, and, and one person's is utterly different from another's. So there's a principle in our order that allows that diversity, even encourages that diversity. And it's the principle of emphasizing uh, a kind of basic spiritual commitment over and above uh, particular lifestyles. So when we get ordained, we're not ordained with any commitment to follow any particular lifestyle. In other words, we're not a monastic order, we're not a lay order, we're not a renunciate order, we're not a, you know, we're not anything order. We're an order of committed Buddhists. And that's the commitment we take when we get ordained. And following immediately from that is a basic ethical commitment. We, we, we commit ourselves to the precepts, the basic precepts of Buddhism. But they are also not prescriptive. They don't tell us how to lead our lives. They're just certain principles, non-violence and so on. And then there's enormous freedom as to how each of us individually puts that commitment into practice. And each of us has that freedom and that, and that uh, responsibility to make those choices. So we do, so we end up with an enormously diverse order of all sorts of people, men and women, all over the world, doing all sorts of different things. And I just love being part of that diverse community. I think if we were nothing but monastics, we'd have a very different flavor to us. We'd probably be stronger in some ways, but we'd miss that diversity. If we were nothing but, um, I think it's called a lay order, we might be even more diverse, but we wouldn't have the monastics, maybe. Also, I love it because um, there's freedom within our order to change our choices as time goes on. And when I look back over my life so far, I've definitely changed tack quite uh, wildly, actually, at times. Just because I felt that's the right thing to do uh, from time to time. I seem to do things in five-year cycles. It doesn't seem very long, really. I'd like to kind of do something for longer at some point. But um, uh, there's no question, there's no sort of disruption in the basic commitment to Buddhism and my basic membership of the order. I simply make choices to live in a community or not, to be homeless or not, to work at one of our Buddhist centers or not. And our order uh, allows all those quite freely and um, allows each of us to unfold our internal process quite freely without, um, without precipitating a crisis in our spiritual life just because we're changing our lifestyle. So I love the movement and the order and sp specifically the principle of uh, commitment being primary that makes that possible. So... Just a little bit of autobiography to kind of fill you in. I've just come back actually to Britain after being abroad for three months, nearly three months. Um, before that, I was working for one of our sanghas or one of our centers called Buddhafield. Buddhafield is slightly different to most of our centers because it's not physically located anywhere. It's like a network of people scattered around the country who come together from time to time to do, to do things. 
and we come from London or Bristol or Brighton or wherever we come from, do that thing, a retreat or a festival or a cafe or whatever, and then part. So it's a network, but it's not located anywhere, except a little bit, a farmhouse in Devon, which is where we store all the stuff, of which there's a lot of stuff. So that network, being part of that network, just suited me really well as being homeless. I could go here and go there. But I left it and decided to spend the, you know, the kind of time it opened up traveling. But uh, specifically visiting as many of our centers as I could possibly manage around the world. I went to India. I love India. And uh, we have many, many centers in India. And there's a strange feeling you get there of things being completely different because India is completely different, and yet a very strong um, bond in common, because we are quite obviously the same community, the same order. And so it's a very strange feeling of complete difference and complete um, uh, communication. From there onwards to Australia, New Zealand, America, we've all got centres scattered around there, and they're all different also in their different ways. The Australians are not the same as the Indians. The New Zealanders are not the same as the Australians. The Americans are different to all of them, and so on. But each centre, uh, I just felt, was an oasis in these big countries, which are often not that spiritually inclined. Uh, but to go to a centre was like visiting an oasis. There was suddenly friendliness and communication and kind of idealism and uh, practice. So it's left me with a real appreciation of our, well, of our order and our centres. Um, just for what it's worth, my impression was all of our centres are in good shape. I don't know if folk have taken interest in our different centres or have been to many of them, but they seemed in good shape. And I'd never been to any of these before, particularly in uh, New Zealand and America. But I'd heard from a distance just how much sweat, or blood, sweat and tears uh, had gone into the establishing of many of them. It's just not easy to uh, get what you need together to found a Buddhist centre. And often they were got together by pretty young people, many women, with very little experience of how to do it. I'm not sure anyone's written a book, how to start a Buddhist centre. And so uh, there's been a great deal of um, difficulty, sweat, as I said, to found them. But pretty much there they all were and seeming stable and um, uh, at ease, not with the crises that I'd heard of in Britain. So that was nice, actually. Anyway, I was able to do this and able to work to, for Buddhafield, partly because of the choices I'd made, which were to be homeless these last four, four and a half years. So when I say this to people, often they kind of an image immediately pops into their mind, homeless. Usually it's homeless equals destitute. Night shelters and soup kitchens and ditches and uh, you know all sorts of stuff. Or drugs, all, all kinds of stuff. So usually the image people have of homelessness is pretty desperate, really. People leading pretty desperate lives who've kind of spiraled down into those things, into that life, because everything else in their life going wrong. For me, uh, it wasn't like that because um, I think it's because I chose it consciously. I think there's a huge difference between conscious 
homelessness and, um, well, accidental or disastrous homelessness. I think the essence of it for me is quite simple. It's simply that you do not have in your pocket a front door key. And that kind of changes everything. Very subtly, it changes everything. It means when it comes to nighttime, you just don't get to go inside anywhere to sleep, have a bath, whatever, without some other person who has got a front door key welcoming, welcoming you in. If you have got one key, there's one door in the world, it might be Manchester, it might be miles away, I don't know, but that's your right to go in there any time you like, shut the door, have a bath, go to sleep, be at home. But the absence of that one key means uh, you're fully dependent on your friendships to provide those basic necessities of life, you know, baths and beds and so on. So I feel almost like the last four years I've been putting my security in my friendships rather than the mortgage. Most people have a mortgage, don't they? Uh, and that's, you know, they're paying off this key, a very expensive key or a very expensive door. But the mortgage is paying off, you know, what's behind the key and the door. Uh, and that's their security, financial security. But uh, I've been putting my security into this whole network, or my network of friendships and relationships, and just kind of general goodwill between me and other people in the movement, which has meant um, I have, it hasn't been disastrous. If my friendships all went wrong, and because I don't have a mortgage, then I would be in a much more difficult situation. But because I have got friendships, uh, I've never felt, I've never felt homeless actually, to be quite honest. I felt, um, well the title of the talk is At Home Everywhere. I felt pretty much I could go to any one of 20 or 30 cities and towns in Britain, not to, not to mention around the world, and just be at home there, at least for a time, very quickly and very kind of warmly, which has been a very, well, gratifying uh, experience to have. And so, partly, I don't feel at all I've been homeless um, in opposition to the folk in our movement who live in houses or communities or families or whatever. I felt um, just increasing gratitude to them because they are the friends I depend on for my basic needs. And it's felt like, at least potentially, there's a very fruitful symbiosis between folk like me and folk like them. They are living rooted in one place or another, connected with the local community, you know, sharing their lives with a few people kind of day by day. Um, I'm more like, almost more like a bee that kind of goes about between different flowers, but uh, pollinating or fertilizing the flowers. And folk often uh, don't get so many visitors where they live, so they're happy to have visitors. So they're happy and I'm happy. And so it has felt, at least potentially, and very often in reality, a very happy exchange. For me, it's just given me a lot of freedom to go here and go there, to kind of see a lot of the world, see a lot of our movement, kind of respond to opportunities as they've come up. Another image people often have of homelessness is kind of aimlessness. You just sort of wander about. Um, 
with no plan or purpose or interest in doing anything. Um, you know, you might as well sit on a street corner. But for me, pretty much, um, I've been wanting to be homeless, but also wanting to be effective. And effective in doing what I can to uh, strengthen our movement and expand our movement to teach the Dharma, practice the Dharma. So, there's all sorts of things going on, scattered around. I was in a, on a retreat in India, for instance, just recently, which they called the Jumbo Retreat. And it was the Jumbo Retreat because it had three and a half thousand people on it. It was huge. And uh, they'd never done it before, this Jumbo Retreat. A huge undertaking for them. But I was just so happy to be able to be there, playing a very small part, um, at what was a, a historic event. Three and a half thousand people from all over India, just uh, on retreat for a week. Fantastic. At the end of it, they gave me the flag. They had a flagpole in the center, flying this enormous Buddhist flag, and they gave it to me at the end, and I undertook it to take it around the world. Um, uh, we're hanging it up, yes, um, everywhere I could. So I brought it here and hung it outside. Not in a very auspicious place, not in a very... Um, not in pride of place, but it's the best I could do without a ladder. So for instance, I had that freedom because of being homeless. Um, so a couple of reflections on the kind of the qualities you need to be homeless. I think um, every lifestyle will have its own qualities that you need. Uh, and according to our different characters and dispositions and interests, you know, we will make different choices. So one thing I found you need to be homeless is just a fairly robust health. If you're not in good health, actually I wouldn't recommend it. You get ill and life would be miserable. But I'm blessed, touch wood, with good health so far, so that's um, stood me in good stead. Another one is, um, is friendships and the interest in keeping friendships alive and healthy because that's the lifeblood, I think, of homelessness at least in a spiritual community. Another one is, um, is um, quite a lot of initiative to always look ahead. Where will you go tonight? Where will you go tomorrow night? Where will you go next week? Um, and unless you kind of keep looking ahead suddenly some event or another will finish and you think, oh my God, I haven't made any plans. Everyone's going home with their front door keys. I haven't uh, fixed anything up. And then there's a slight feeling of walking off, approaching the edge of a precipice and um, having to sort something out quickly. Um, and that the need for that initiative rolls along whether you happen to feel sort of inspired or not inspired, you know, upbeat or not upbeat. Uh, so sometimes you've got to take the initiative even though it's the last thing you feel like doing. You just like to go to bed somewhere. Um, so there's a certain strength, I suppose, needed to summon up that initiative, come what may. Otherwise, you know, you fall off the end, as I said. Something else, I suppose, about being quite sensitive to how other people choose to live their lives. When you visit lots of places, you realize very quickly everyone's got their little rituals about how they do the washing up and what cupboard the plates go in 
and what time they get up in the morning and do they have a cup of tea before breakfast and hundred different things like that which are often quite um, fixed rituals it's just how people like to live their lives and it seems appropriate being homeless to join in with them rather than um, contradict them is part of being a guest I think so a certain sensitivity to how people do things all the small things and then a certain willingness to fit in with it otherwise I think people get upset and you know you, your welcome is worn out uh, and you're not welcome back and then your pool of possible places shrinks and then it would all go wrong um, yes I'm sure there's others but those I think are the main ones maybe also just an interest in diversity uh, which, at the, which for this last time, these last few years, I've had, but I can kind of, you know, it won't last forever. I could give another list of all the things you have to sort of give up or you don't get much of being homeless, but I won't do that. I'm sure we could think it all through for ourselves. Um, I'd like to um, tell you a poem that I came across I think I came across it in Bodhgaya, actually, in India, where the Buddha got enlightened, which is another of the places I love to go. I've been there every year for four or five years now. Uh, it's this little town in the middle of a very unhappy part of the world, Bihar, in northeast India. But it's a kind of oasis uh, of Buddhism in, in, a, in a not happy part of India. But I was there, and uh, I came across a book which was a translation of um, poems by Rilke, Rainer Maria Rilke, translated as it happens by Joanna Macy, who's a lady Buddhist I'm sure some of us know. And I read this poem and it just uh, struck me so strongly and it was sort of instantly in my mind uh, in the way some poems are. So I'll read it to you because it says something about what I've been trying to do. He says, Rilke says, I live my life in widening circles that spread out across the world. I may not ever complete the last one, but I give myself to it utterly. And then he goes on, he says, I circle around God, that primordial tower. I have been circling for thousands of years, and still I don't know, am I a storm? a falcon or a great song. So I live my life in widening circles that spread out across the world. So that poem to me, it's something about um, a lifestyle, you know, widening circles, but something about a quest, just being in quest of something. And looking back on my life, I'm getting older so I can look back further, um, I can see different choices at different times and different lifestyles at different times, but some sort of thread running through it, a more constant thread, um, despite the different choices. In one, one sense, the thread is Buddhist, you know, Buddhist thread, but that doesn't really say much, because we've all got Buddhist threads to some degree or another in our lives, while being very different people. So some sort of thread of how 
what I'm kind of in quest of, what I'm trying to search for through my Buddhist life. And what I think I realize is it, it is for me a sort of quest. I see my life, the metaphor, if you like, is a sort of quest, in quest of something. Uh, being homeless, maybe it's obviously on a quest. Living somewhere, maybe less so. Um, and as, as the time's gone on, it's had different kind of characteristics. But in some way, it's a quest for freedom. A quest for freedom. There's a kind of inner freedom, freedom from one's habits, one's desires, one's patterns that kind of limit you. Freedom from, you know, greed or hatred and ignorance. Freedom from unconfidence and fear. And freedom from a kind of fixed identity. I think that's the, um, the, uh, the central thing I'm seeking freedom from. Freedom from the kind of boxes we put ourselves in. And potentially, homelessness, I am homeless, is a box just like any other box. But at least you've got to step outside some boxes to be in that box. Um, so the quest for freedom may be... Uh, is, is, is quite clear in the, in the homeless life. Somewhere in there also is a quest for, at first I called it the simple life, um, in that when you're homeless you have very few possessions. When you've, if you live somewhere, you tend to clutter up your house with all sorts of possessions, in my observation of people. Um, but I realized it's not really the, sim the simple life. Actually, it's much simpler live in a nice house with electricity if you want light you flick the switch if you want a cup of tea you flick the kettle um, if you want to go somewhere you just get in your car and all being well that's a fairly simple life just it's easy to get things done the homeless life um, everything in a sense is more complicated everything takes longer everything is more protracted if you're living out of doors a cup of tea could take half an hour you have to build a fire gather wood so it's not quite a simple life. It's more the elemental life. And I've come to feel more and more strongly that for me at least, being close to the elements, uh, the basic earth, water, fire and air, uh, or the land you know, that we're surrounded by, is just of benefit to me. It kind of makes me more real or more, more, um, more authentic somehow. It's hard to articulate, but certainly it's a quest for connection with the elements as well as people and the homeless life I do love because I just come to know the land much more and spend more time in a way exposed to the elements when I first started camping retreats with Woodfield um, I remember incredible anxiety coming up in me that we just about get set up and then a cloud would appear on the horizon this being England uh, and I thought, oh my God, it might rain. And you know, if it rains, it'll all be spoiled. And uh, a terrible feeling of responsibility, but just anxiety. And of course, the cloud did appear, and the cloud came close, and the cloud rained, and we all got wet. But then, it finished, it passed, we all got dry. And going through that experience, it sounds almost trite, um, came a confidence that actually things are impermanent. Things come and things go. And it doesn't sort of matter. You get wet, you get dry. You get cold, you get warm, and so on. 
And so something about the elemental life, I think, brings, puts you in contact with that more raw experience, but then gives you the, the confidence that um, even if it's unpleasant, it will pass. Things are indeed impermanent. Lastly for me, I think this is quite a personal thing, being homeless, there's been some sort of quest for roots, kind of being rooted in the land of England, I suppose. Um, and I don't quite know how to talk about that, except it feels basically quite healthy and positive, and something to do with identity, but not too fixed. When I grew up, my parents uh, lived abroad. They were English, but expatriates, always living abroad, kind of always moving on. Maybe this, I'm just repeating some old pattern here, I don't know. But so I grew up feeling English, but not having anywhere in England I could locate as a home, and feeling slightly disconnected, in fact, from England. So I think there's been some sort of search for just a connection with the land of Britain. I've also loved the myths of Britain, the old kind of stories and legends of Britain. So, um, that's the kind of thread that for me has been running through the different choices I've made, whether homelessness or before, kind of being in quest for these things. The quest for freedom, the quest for the kind of elemental life, and the quest for some sort of roots, or some sort of connection with, um, with place, I suppose. The way I did it um, was not just by walking out one day from where I lived, because I used to live in London as much as Yeti said. I kind of knew that uh, just to walk out would be a very willful act, and uh, almost an act of violence, and that I would regret it later. So I went through quite a long process of whittling down my possessions. I got as many books and this and that as most people. And I had a, a long period, every morning after meditation, of looking through some of my stuff. And looking for stuff I was happy to get rid of. And almost to my surprise, I discovered every day, pretty much every day, I was happy to get rid of something new, which I wasn't happy to yesterday some other shirt or a few more books or some cassettes or just throw some notes in the bin I hadn't looked at for years, something like that. And uh, it was like sort of sweeping the floor every day and a little bit more dust comes off the carpet every day, something like that. And after about six months of this, I'd managed to get down to just a rucksack. And having just got a rucksack, it was light enough to pick up and leave. But it was a very important process to, um, to reach that point. A few days, not surprisingly, I got rid of something and had second thoughts. Quickly went back to where I'd put it, either in the bin or a second-hand shop or even given to a friend, and requested it back. And sometimes I got it back, sometimes I didn't. Uh, but I was quite gentle with myself, I think, which felt appropriate. Yes. Um, I think I've already talked a little bit about some of the fruits I personally feel being homeless has given me. There's a sense of being at home everywhere, that I could pretty much go to any town or city in Britain or around the world, if at anywhere there's a sangha, and be at home there. 
So I don't feel homeless. I feel a wealth of um, possibilities, which I love. There's also a, a, a sense of wealth that comes from contentment. I feel I have all I need. I don't feel the lack of, you know, half a dozen different things which people crave. So pretty much, uh, you know, all you need is a couple of pairs of underpants, a couple of shirts, one coat, one pair of shoes, you know, but that's all you need. Um, and I have it, so I feel a certain sense of wealth. One of my inspirations in this was a lady who you might or might not have heard of called Peace Pilgrim. Peace Pilgrim. If you haven't heard of her, I recommend her. She's fantastic. She was American. She uh, was called Peace Pilgrim. And she lived, I think she died in about 1970, something like that. But she spent, I think, 28 years in, in, in America uh, walking, kind of walking for peace. And she called herself Peace Pilgrim, and she just walked and she talked. She gave interviews and she gave talks and everything. And she had petitions, and uh, she was just a one-woman walking demonstration for peace, but homeless. And before she left home, she went through the same process of whittling down her possessions to what she called her need level. And what she discovered she needed was literally uh, a comb, a toothbrush, and uh, a pen for her correspondence. She needed nothing else apart from them and the clothes she stood up in. No spare clothes, no night clothes, no tents, no sleeping bag, no money, no food, nothing. And she lived 28 years walking about America, starting in the late, in the mid-1950s, not an easy time to walk about America, the height of McCarthyism and so on, um, for peace. But she just had a magic gift of um, connecting with people who then offered her what she needed. Uh, and she is a great inspiration to me, I must say. Uh, you'd find her very easily on the internet, if you can work the internet. Peace Pilgrim. Anyway, a sense of wealth, yes. There's also a sense for me of, um, of gratitude to all the people I'm in relationship with, and also a sense of, I suppose, happiness that, compared to many people who I meet, a lot of my time and a lot of my energy is free, free to use for what I wish. In other words, I don't have to spend much time kind of running just to keep up with the bills or keep up with, um, keep my head above water. Being homeless is a very cheap lifestyle. It being cheap, getting the necessary money takes very little time. Because it takes very little time, there's a lot of time free for the things that really matter to me. And I feel grateful, I suppose, not quite sure who to, but just happy to be in that position of being free to go here and go there. At the same time, lastly, there's a sense of humility in that, here's me, but uh, you can just look around and see a lot of people, Peace Pilgrim is one, who've just given up a great deal more. What I come to realize is everyone's got their kind of comfort level, or their need level, if you like. Uh, and it's more in some people and less in others. But um, we're all still attached. We're all still attached to this or that. Uh, not especially because it's a need, just because attachment is attachment. And I kind of recognize it. And I think when you have relatively few things, those few things are very...
precious to you, which means you're very strongly attached to them. Uh, and I can feel that in myself, and I feel a certain humility because of it. So, um, those choices are all very personal to me, and I'm not at all expecting many other people to want to make them. I mean, why should you? But the principle behind them, I've mentioned already, is the principle of choice. We all have a certain freedom of choice in our lives. That means we all have a certain responsibility to use that freedom of choice. Uh, and it's a responsibility very much for our own benefit because our whole futures will come, will flow out of it according to the choices we make. And some choices are easy to make, some choices are much harder to make. Some choices you can hardly stop somebody making and some are a real act of courage to make. Um, uh, and they will be different for all of us. And I would just like to encourage us to use that, to reflect on our lives, reflect on our situation, reflect on our own kind of threads. You know, what's, what's your kind of deeper archetype almost that your, your spiritual life is about in some way? And then find ways to maybe change the choices you make, or at least make them more fully, make them more consciously, so that the fruits of them you know, come more fully. Because I also feel this is less to do with being homeless, more to do with getting older. I also feel time is precious. Time is so precious. This feeling has slowly grown up on me in the last few years. Uh, time is so precious. Every, you know, every day, almost every minute, will only come once. And uh, there's not so many of them. So the choices we make and the lives we lead are just so important to kind of make them well and make them fully. Uh, and I think it's a tragedy to have choice and not to use it. I've known a few people, you know, the world is their oyster. Often they've got loads of money in, from inheritance or something, and they get paralyzed by choices. They could do everything, anything, so they do nothing. And that's a tragedy. Much better to make a choice, even if it's arbitrary, and just go for it because you can always change it later, if need be. So, before I finish, I'd just like to um, kind of bring out two things that uh, I suppose are a part of my current interests, so that the two things I'm wanting to use, you know, make the most of as best as I can. And I think to some extent, there are two things which are universal as well. So different folk among us are leading very different lives. But I think to some extent, they, they could be or should be of interest at least to all of us. So the first one is that comes from a kind of almost abstract consideration that as we act, um, our actions have consequences in different spheres. There's an immediate sphere, you and the person you're talking to, but then there's a wider sphere, you and your community, there's a wider sphere, you know, you, you and um, whoops, society, and there's a kind of even wider sphere of us and the whole of the rest of life on the planet. And to some extent, the choices we make have consequences in all of those spheres, including the widest possible sphere, you know, us and the planet. Often the consequences are completely out of sight. 
because, you know, the whole planet is a long way away, or most of it is. Uh, it's out of sight, but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So consequences are consequences, whether you see them or not. And I think we live in a particularly interconnected world where we can do things here and now that do have consequences all over, much more than was the case in the past. So anyway, what I'm getting around to is talking about the sphere of environmentalism, environmental concern, which whatever our lifestyles, whatever our kind of immediate spheres, uh, we are connected to. And the actions we take, whatever our lifestyles, will just have a huge impact upon. Partly travel is a good one. Partly food is a good one. It's very instructive to go to a supermarket, buy whatever you want to buy, and then look on the labels as to where it comes from. And you might be amazed how many countries your breakfast comes from. Just your breakfast, never mind lunch or supper. Uh, and those are connections. They really are connections between us and those people in those countries. And with every purchase we make or every action we take, we're kind of sending signals back down the supply chain to those people. You know, basically the signal says, more please. So if you're buying something that comes from somewhere or is produced in a certain way, you're not happy with it. But if you buy it anyway, the signal is more please. And obviously they respond, they produce more. Thank you. Um, and I, I couldn't say if it's being homeless that's made me more conscious of this sphere or if it was there anyway. But um, we do live, whatever our lives, in a very interconnected way. And I think we just have a responsibility to look, at, you know, look at the ripples from our actions. I think food and travel are probably the greatest because we do a lot of eating food and we do a fair bit of travelling and uh, they definitely affect the whole uh, planet really. The second one, um, this is actually a bit of a, a tangent to the talk but I just want to mention it, is uh, in India we have many many centres and uh, I love India, India is a fantastic place and our Sangha in India is fantastic. The difficulties they sort of labour under to practice Buddhism, establish Buddhism in the land of India, are enormous. India is basically Hindu and Muslim, uh, and Buddhism is a tiny minority in, uh, in India. It's a tiny minority in Britain, but in a sense it's got much more active opposition in India because uh, it's a much more religious country. So, um, you know, you're running into much more energy opposing you in India. And in, in, in India, this, this year, 2006, there's an anniversary coming up for uh, the man who, in effect, uh, reintroduced Buddhism to India. He wasn't, can't claim sole credit, but he certainly introduced Buddhism to the community that our Sangha is uh, mostly connected with in India. So the man is Dr. Ambedkar, uh, who converted to Buddhism and died in the same year, 50 years ago, to, to 1956. So in 1956, he converted to Buddhism with an enormous number of his followers. I think half a million on the day, pretty much, and millions more in the next few weeks. 
a huge, it's the biggest, I think it may be the biggest single conversion from one faith to another ever. I'm not sure about that, but it may be. And it started off a kind of wave of Buddhist revival in India that uh, our movement uh, is part of. But he converted in October 1956 and he died in December 1956, a tragedy. There's a whole story there, as you could imagine. And this is the 50th anniversary year. So I was in India in January this year and um, they are celebrating it. I mean, for them, it's a huge anniversary. For us, it could so easily be a little bit out of sight, a little bit out of mind. Who's Dr. Ambedkar? I've got other things to worry about. But I think but Dr. Ambedkar is one of the great heroes of the 20th century. I think he's much less known than he should be. He was extraordinary. The things he achieved were extraordinary. So I think it would be just very good for us to learn about Dr. Ambedkar, celebrate Dr. Ambedkar this year, just in kind of solidarity with, um, with uh, our brothers and sisters in India. It's not difficult. We've, we've published books on Dr. Ambedkar. Uh, there's quite a lot of Indians living and working in, Indi in England with us at the moment. But he is just a hero. He wasn't technically Buddhist for very long, but he was effectively Buddhist for many, many years. And he's just a great exemplar of Buddhism, you know, the kind of heroic, indomitable spirit of uh, the Bodhisattva, I think. Uh, so I'd just like to encourage us, if you don't know about Dr. Ambedkar already, learn about him. So lastly, I just want to finish with a short quotation, another one of my favorite quotations, just coming back to the theme of each of us having our own lives, our own situations, but having our own uh, choices to make, our own freedom and our own responsibility to make choices. Because um, basically, when you make choices or commitments, things happen. Not much happens before you make that commitment to do this or do that, but once you make it, things do happen. And things happen, I believe, in a slightly mysterious way. Basically, you start discovering you have allies in the universe. You know, there's things in the universe that can support you. And so you might feel it's a tough choice to make. Who's going to help me? You don't know. You make it anyway. And then actually, things happen. So you may know this quotation already. It's by Goethe. Uh, I'll end with it. He says, until one is committed, there is always hesitancy, always the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. This is, the moment one definitely commits oneself, providence moves too. All sorts of things then occur to help that would otherwise never have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from your decision, raising to your favor all manner of unforeseen accidents and meetings and material assistance which no one could have dreamed would come their way. Whatever you can do or dream you can do, begin it. Boldless, 
has genius, power, and magic in it. Thank you very much.